to take a seat and reach for a Bible. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to be beginning at verse 17. Uh, this is just a, a, the second of a two-parter. Little gap in the program. Last, uh, last time we were in Psalm 8. And we thought about the glory of humanity or the glory of God reflected in humanity. Uh, crowned with glory and honor. Given royal dignity and royal rule. This evening, though, we're thinking about what's gone wrong. Why is it that that isn't what hits us when we look at humanity around us? What's gone wrong and what is God doing about it? So we're going to look together at Ephesians 4, verse 17 through to 5, verse 2. Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray together for his help. Father, as we think through who we are, what we're for, and particularly this evening, what's gone wrong and your wonderful plan to restore, please give us ears to hear. We pray that these words wouldn't just go in one ear and out the other, but that they would sink deep into our hearts and build our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. On Thursday, the staff team here took a trip to the British Museum. Uh, It's a great thing to do. I mean, it's free, apart from anything else, which is nice, isn't it? It's a great thing to do, though, if you can spare the time. Uh, And if you know where to look, you can find all sorts of historical proof for the reliability of the Bible. They've got exhibits there that back up all sorts of Bible stories. Now, some of those stories were once thought to have been made up by some until certain artifacts were dug up, and surprise, surprise, the Bible was proven to be right all along. But museums aren't everyone's cup of tea, are they? I, I like history as it happens, but um, there are only 
so many 4,000-year-old pots I can stare at before I pass out with boredom. I, I reckon one of the keys to enjoying a museum is imagination. Uh, you need to be able to look at that thing. You'd say it's a, a dusty, half-chipped-off column from some massive ancient civilization and be able, in your mind's eye, to imagine what that column once was, what it did, proudly supporting the roof of some heaven-high temple, or, or look at those giant gates and picture how they must have gleamed in the midday sun as people approached the city from a distance. And it's true that this kind of stone slab sitting in the glass display box isn't particularly exciting on its own, but imagine what it was like when it was part of a glorious building. To be able to look at a ruin and see what it once was. And that's the key. Of course, it's even better when the ruin is still standing in its original place. If you have visited the Colosseum in Rome, you stand there, you're looking out at this vast stone circle. You, uh, in your imagination, hear the roar of the crowds as the gladiators emerge from the tunnel. You see the gleaming crown on the head of the emperor, the flowing robes of the ruling classes. That ruin was once a wonder. Well, last Sunday evening, we saw the wonder of humanity as God made us. Lowly, but loved. Lowly, but royal. Royal dignity. Royal purpose. Created by God to rule with glory and honor, the true wonder of the world. But ever since man's first rebellion in Genesis 3, humanity is a wonder in ruins. The human race is not what it's made to be, isn't that obvious? Isn't there obviously something very wrong with humanity? And in Ephesians 4 here, Paul lays out just how ruined humanity has become. We'll look together at the ruin and then at the restoration. Firstly, man's ruin, 4 verses 17 to 19. These verses, 17 to 19, are not very politically correct. Mankind, says Paul, is in a desperate state. Sin has ruined every aspect of humanity. So verse 17, humanity's mind or thinking has become futile, empty, meaningless, pointless, Humanity is, verse 18, darkened in its understanding and ignorant. Not uh, accidentally ignorant, this is a deliberate ignorance. Elsewhere, Paul describes humanity as suppressing the truth that they know about God. Though we know about God by nature, Paul says we suppress it, we force it down. Think of um, uh, playing in the sea with an inflatable beach ball. Imagine pushing it under the water holding it down, keeping the pressure on, stopping the ball popping up. That's humanity with the truth we know about God. At our deepest being, humanity knows he's there. The most hardened atheist knows that he's there, but we push that knowledge down. And by nature, it leaves us, Ephesians 4, 18, alienated from God. We're estranged from him. We're cut off like an uprooted plant. Like a beached whale, mankind cut off from our creator. And Paul traces the source of the problem, end of verse 18, 
notice to a hardened heart. Now, the heart in the Bible is the deepest part of me. It's the control center. It's the steering wheel of my life. Now, the ruin of mankind's rebellion against God goes right down to the root of who we are. It leaves no part of a person unaffected. Back in 2019, Mark Ruffalo starred in a film called Dark Waters. You might have seen it. Based on the true story of, a, of how a man called Robert Billet took on a chemical manufacturing corporation which was contaminating a town's water supply with dangerous chemicals. It was a noble battle. He fought the corporation for 20 long years. Now, the human heart is a little bit like that chemical manufacturer pumping poison into every part of a person. There is no part of a person by nature uninfected by sin. Now, church history has called this the doctrine of total depravity. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone is as wicked as they could possibly be. God's restraining hand sees to that. It does mean, though, that every human faculty, our thinking, our feeling, our doing, all of it is now contaminated. None of it is what it was made to be. And this explains why we see what we see in the world every day. What we see is verse 19. They've become callous. By nature, we are hardened to God. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Sin always wants more, always pushes for greater pleasure, never satisfied, never stopping. Man is a ruin. And notice, by the way, that what Paul says here was as true of these Ephesian Christians before they became Christians as it was true of anyone else. You look carefully at verse 17 with me. What does he say in verse 17? This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. No longer. Implication, this is how you used to walk. Christians aren't a, a better breed of person by nature. By nature, from birth, this is as true of me as anyone else in the world. Isn't that a reason to be humble about myself? Now, I said this isn't politically correct. It certainly isn't the way the world thinks about humanity, is it? But the world around us puts great confidence in the human mind and in human emotions and feelings. It preaches a gospel of self-belief and self-confidence. I am the most reliable guide to my truth. We're told to trust our instincts, follow our feelings. I should look for the answers inside myself. I should discover who I really am within myself. To take a contemporary example, if my feelings tell me that I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, I'm told to trust those feelings. But if Paul's right here, if the human heart and mind have become contaminated with sin, then trusting my heart and my mind to tell me who I am and what I'm for is the last thing I should do. Now notice, we're not saying here that people don't have those thoughts or those feelings. Someone may feel very strongly, for example, that they are trapped in the wrong body, and that can be a very hard place to be. And we should have compassion on people's suffering and struggles, as we'd want them to have compassion on ours as well. And some of us here may well have struggles like that. Now, becoming a Christian doesn't zap away all of our struggles, does it, in a moment. 
Christians too struggle with issues of sexuality and identity. Christians too can be plagued with doubt about who they are and wrestle with confusing thoughts. If that's you, you're not alone. But there is a difference, isn't there, between having those thoughts on the one hand and trusting those thoughts on the other. Our doctrine of sin, which tells us that our minds aren't reliable guides to what's true, that doctrine should make us very suspicious of ourselves. I feel this way, I think this way, maybe I'm wrong. I know that maybe younger people among us are really at the sharp end of this, maybe you guys at school. I'm sorry about that. You're being treated like guinea pigs in a giant social experiment at the moment. Our culture is blindly guessing when it comes to questions of human identity. It doesn't know what a human being is or what a human being is for. And there isn't a shred of evidence to back up the idea that we can just decide who we are regardless of how we've been made. Forgive me if this example sounds flippant, it isn't designed to be, but they've just done the, the latest NBA draft, you know, the big basketball, biggest basketball teams in America. They pick or they draft the best college players to play for their team. And the first uh, picked player is the one that the teams think is the best. And this year, the first pick was a guy called Victor Wembanyama. Anyone want to guess how tall Victor is? Go on, have a go. Yes, very good. He's seven foot five. And his wingspan, is, the length of his arms outstretched, is eight foot. And try, try passing around him. Now, I don't have to tell you that I'm never going to play in the NBA. I'm five foot ten and a half. I feel passionately about that half. If I stood next to Victor, I'd look like a toddler. No matter how hard I think, or I try to manifest being seven foot five with an eight foot wingspan, I will still be five foot ten and a half. And there will probably still be clothes in my mum's house designed for a six footer that I never grew into. I'm fine with that. I'm much better in, of enjoying being five foot ten and a half if I can than desperately hoping I'll have a growth spurt in my late thirties. Like I know it's a silly example, and I know these are serious issues, but can you see that the idea that I can be whatever I think I am is a silly one? So many of the things our culture is saying at the moment are really silly. And just because lots of people are saying it, it doesn't make it any less silly. Can I encourage us, and can I particularly encourage you, if you're at school and you're hearing a lot of this stuff fired at you, can I encourage you to think hard about this? Don't just accept the stuff everyone else is accepting just because influential people say it. Just because a famous singer says you can be whoever you want to be, don't just accept it. Just because someone famous says that the person can change their gender and it'll all be fine, no negative consequences, don't just accept it. Think. Do they know or are they making it up as they go along? 
And just one more word for those of us at school. If your parents are Christians, hopefully they're not saying what everyone else is saying. And you might find that quite hard sometimes. It might sound like they don't love you, but they really do. You know, one of the signs that someone really cares about you is that they'll say hard things to you if they know you need to hear it, if they know it's what's best for you. Christian parents want so much better for their children than to live in a kind of make-believe world. They want for you what God wants for you. And he wants to make a whole new you. So secondly, see with me here, God's restoration. This is our second and final thought. God's restoration, 4 verses 20 to 5, 2. But when Paul described man's ruin, he began in the mind. And the mind is where God's restoration here begins. It helps me to think at this point about horses. Have you ever thought about the fact that you're a bit like a horse? I'm not saying you look like a horse. Don't form a cue afterwards and tell me off. But we're a bit like horses. Have you ever ridden a horse? Here's all I know about riding a horse. The way to turn the horse, I think, is to turn the head. So you Gently pull the head right, and the horse goes right. You pull the head left, and the horse goes left. And wherever the head goes, the rest of the horse goes. We're a bit like a horse. Where my thinking goes, my head, my mind, the rest of me will go as well. If my mind is corrupted by sin, in the grip of sin, if it's alienated from God, if I'm driven along by a hard heart, it'll turn me to ruin. That's the story of the human race. But a restored mind, restored thinking, a mind and a heart which is reconnected with a loving God, that's what Paul describes here in verses 20 to 24. This is God's restoration work. And what is it, notice, that restores our thinking? Verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ. Learning Christ. Verse 21 hearing about him, being taught about him, having the truth about the Lord Jesus in the gospel change me from the inside. If we were here last week, we won't be surprised that God's restoration project is all about Jesus. He is what humanity was always made to be, the perfect image and likeness of God, ruling with righteousness and justice, crowned with glory and honor, with all things under his feet, He is the template. He is the original. He's the pattern of restored humanity. And when the gospel of the Lord Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the throne, and the forgiveness of sins preached in his name, when that gospel gets into a believing human mind, God's work of restoration begins. God makes us a new person like him. When I put my trust in Jesus for the first time, God isn't just forgiving my sin, enormous though that is. He isn't just joining me to a church, enormous though that is. He's doing nothing less than making me a whole new person. The glorious being he always intended me to be. He sets my mind free from sin's grip. He swaps my heart of stone for a beating heart of flesh. He undoes the alienation. He brings me to himself. 
He makes an enemy his friend. He makes me a whole new me. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And so Paul here, verse 23, you've put off your old self. The old you is over. And you've put on the new self, verse 24. And what is that self like, verse 24? It's like God. Righteous, holy, wonderful. Where in the world will you find an identity as glorious as that? To be recreated like God himself. There are many people in the world around us who love the idea of being made new. We may rub shoulders during the week with those who have a sense that something about themselves isn't right. They'd love to be a new person, but how? How can I escape all the disappointments of being me? How can I reinvent myself into a better person? How can I be made new? I think of the person who tries to change their gender. And they change their name as though the old person is gone and the new person is here. They're reaching for a new start to be a new person. If only I can line up my mind with my body, then I'll be new. But the great tragedy is when they wake up in the morning, they're not a new person, not really. They may look different, they may even feel different, but their minds are still darkened, their hearts are still hard, and they're still alienated from God. And what they really need, and what perhaps in their own way they're reaching for, is what Paul describes here. When we trust in Christ, God really does make us new. And the rest of this passage, through till 5 verse 2, is really just saying to us, given that that is who you are now, live like it. Be who you are. Be the new humanity God has made you to be. Be true to your new self in Christ. You know that idea of being uh, true to yourself, of being authentic? The Bible was saying that centuries ago. Christian, you are new. So be the new person God has made you to be. You see, that's what he's saying there in verse 25. In Christ, you're not a dishonest person anymore. That person is over. You've put it off, so live like it. Be truthful now. You're not a thief anymore, verse 28. You're being remade to be generous like God is generous, so live like it. Or, or verse 31, you're not a bitter, unforgiving person anymore. You've put that person away. You know Jesus who forgave your sin. You're new. So live like it. In other words, chapter 5, verse 1, be like God. Love like God. Love like Jesus who gave his life for you. Now, we know we won't always get this right. We don't here, do we? Becoming a Christian is a massive change. 
And the change can be slow over time, and it carries on till the end of our lives. But as we listen to the gospel, as we remember who Jesus is, what he's done, who he's made us to be, as our minds are renewed by the truth, so our lives will follow. And notice, we do this together, don't we? God's restoration project here isn't just me, it's us. It's a whole new humanity in the church. When God's restoration project is finished, when Jesus returns, it won't just be you or me, it'll be us. A new glorious humanity, crowned with glory and honor, with all things under our feet. No more identity issues on that day, no more worrying about who we are or what we're for. We'll be with God, we'll rule with Jesus as kings and queens, and we'll be finally, truly, and wonderfully human. Until that day, we have an opportunity, don't we, here at Duke Street. We're living in a world that is hopelessly confused on these issues. We have the opportunity to show the world what humanity was made to be. As the gospel renews our thinking, as we put on this new identity together, as God changes us from within, we can show the world this restoration project in progress. And as we do, there will be some around us who begin to see through the guessing and the shallow slogans that they're hearing. We'll meet people who are looking for something that makes sense, an identity that fits a purpose grand enough for humanity. God will bring them to us and we'll point them to the most glorious human there has ever been, the Son of Man who died for us and rose for us and reigns for us and who one day will restore us to a glory we can barely imagine. Let's pray.